We're going to continue our series called Legacy, and I want to start off talking about the Apostle Paul. Many of you guys know the Apostle Paul. Um, he, he was a great man of faith, great man of power. He led the, the early church in so many ways, wrote so much of the New Testament. But it wasn't just about Paul. There was a, a guy named Timothy who he really was a son in the faith for Paul. And there's this, this spot. I love this scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. And it says this, Paul's telling Timothy, he says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And I love this because it's a picture of really how leadership works. It's a picture of how discipleship works. It's a picture of how legacy works. Because here we have layers that get, desig- that, that get passed down. So you have Paul and he said, so Paul's at one layer and one level or whatever, and he passes it down to Timothy to another level. And he says, Timothy, I want you to pass this on to faithful men So there's another level who will be able to teach others also. You can see these levels of of really of something being handed and carried on, this culture, this whatever you want to call it being passed down, this teaching being passed down. And, And one of the ways you can actually, if you want to look at an organization, maybe a business, a church, maybe even a family, one of the ways you can tell how far the culture at the top or the culture at the beginning or the inception or whatever you want to say has, has lasted. You look and see how many layers in can you go in that culture, that business, that church, whatever, and it still be the same culture that's happening at the beginning. So how many of you guys have ever been to maybe a business and you had a bad experience at a business, like maybe a big business, maybe you went into one of those big stores, Anybody ever had a bad experience or is it just me? Okay. See, at the core, at the top there, somewhere they had a vision. Somewhere they had, a, I, I believe, a good culture. But something happened. It didn't get passed down throughout the layers so that what you encounter over here does not match what's actually up there. And what we want to do when we think about legacy, we think about discipleship, we think about leaving a legacy or passing on to, to the generations, we want to see the same culture. And, and for us as believers, it's the kingdom of heaven culture. We want to see the kingdom of of heaven passed down, passed through the different layers of our relationships and of our lives. And it's challenging. It's challenging to do. I tell my kids this all the time, and you may have noticed this, but you can even see it in a family, that what, what, what the parents do and allow and permit, the next generation of kids will go just a little bit further. Have you ever noticed that? They'll just take it just a little bit further. And so then that generation now is acceptable for whatever this is, and they pass it on to another generation, which they go a little bit further. So it's challenging to maintain culture, and it's, and it's challenging for us to think about. And, but but I, I just want to be that type of person that one day my great-grandchildren will, will look back and say something like, that Grandpa Phillips, you know, that great-grandfather, he lived a life of faith. He lived a life. He, he was a kingdom of God type of person. And, and I want to have that legacy. Like, anybody want to have that one day that they say that about you? I do. I, I want that. Now, there's a part of me, though, and maybe there's a part of you that wonders, should we really even want that? Like, should we want 
our name to be held in high. I mean, shouldn't it all just be about Jesus? I mean, shouldn't it be that when people see us, they only see Jesus? Shouldn't it be that, that you know, it's not even about us, that when we pass on, that they just remember Jesus, right? How many guys ever wonder that? Like, should we even want to leave a legacy? In fact, I had this question come up as I was driving into church uh, a few, few weeks ago, or a couple weeks ago. And on the radio, I heard a song that many of you guys may have heard before. And it's a song, uh, and in the song, it says this very line, I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't want to leave a legacy. I, I don't even uh, care if they remember me, only Jesus. How many of you guys have heard that song before? All right. Uh, so just to step on a little bit of toes here, just a little bit, um, I'll just start off by saying K-Love radio station may not be the best place to get your theology, uh, just as a starting point. Uh, just because people are singing about it doesn't mean it's the way we should go. Uh, so I always kind of, you know, fact check that with scripture and the Bible and, and whatever I hear. But on the surface, I was like, you know, of course, I'm in this series too, like legacy series. Like, well, wait a minute. You're saying you don't want to leave a legacy. And I'm saying, let's leave a legacy. So what's the problem here? And, and here's my issue with, now I understand the overall uh, thing of a song. And if it's your favorite song, I'm really sorry about that. But uh, I understand the overall point. But here's, here's my issue with those lines. It I don't like it because of what it implies. And it implies this. It implies that we're actually not treasured by God enough to be remembered. It implies that once our work here on earth is done, it's okay if we're forgotten. It implies that, um, that we can just be used up for God's purposes and then just thrown away. And there's something that seems super spiritual about that, right? There's something that seems noble about that. Well, only God, only Jesus should be uh, highlighted, and I just want to evaporate and disappear so that people only see Jesus because that would be prideful if, if we wanted to leave a legacy in some ways. And the real issue I have with it is it implies a wrong theology of, uh, and it goes like this, I am nothing, and I'm not worthy. And this is embedded into... And that's why I say you have to be careful getting your theology off the radio because you have to go back to Scripture. Because this idea sounds super spiritual, but when you start to study Scripture, you start to realize maybe there's something else going on here. And, and here's the real challenge for us, and here's why it's important for me to preach this, because low spiritual self-esteem leads to a lost identity. Whenever we try to constantly lower our spiritual self-esteem and say, I just won't, don't even want to be seen, heard, I just don't want to be a part of any of that, I, only Jesus, then we've lost some of the identity that Jesus came and died on the cross, rose from the dead to impart to us. And it, this is so important that it's not lost. And, and here's why it's important, because many of us, we face battles throughout our life. We know that. We face battles. And I can tell you, if you don't know who you are in Jesus, you're probably going to lose those battles most of the time. So th this is important for us to get. Is anybody hearing me today? Because this is, I mean, this is vitally important, okay? And, and it, th so this I am not worthy, here, here's the problem with the I'm not worthy, I am nothing theology. The problem is this, Jesus wouldn't say that about you. Jesus wouldn't say that you're nothing. Jesus wouldn't say that you aren't worthy. You say, well, that's messing with my theology. Well, it needs to mess with your theology because it's in the Bible. I mean, Jesus thought, he, he loved us so much that even while we were sinners, he died for us. 
And then he welcomed us into his family and he calls us a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He is the lifter of our head. And so the problem with the I am nothing, I am not worthy, as soon as my life is over, just forget about me theology is that Jesus wouldn't say that about you. And we can't, as Bill Johnson says, we can't afford to have a thought in our head that Jesus doesn't think about us. So we have to think Jesus' thoughts. And the truth is, you know, one day, if, if you work in an office or something, one day the place where you work, the office that you fill right now, uh, if you, you leave or you resign, you retire, whatever, one day somebody will fill that spot. And eventually, maybe year two or three, people will even forget that you even worked there, those coworkers, and you'll be forgotten. But that's not the way it is with God. God designed us to last for eternity. God designed us, not that when our life is over, that's it. He designed us to last for eternity. And I, I pray that somebody gets set free here today and that you understand who you are in Jesus. That it's not about, you know, I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't want anybody to remember me. I don't want, no, Jesus says, I designed you for eternity. I designed you to be loved and to, to, leave, to leave something, to, to leave a mark, if you will. And that's how Jesus designed us. In fact, uh, we're encouraged in Scripture to be an example. Why would we be encouraged to be an example if it wasn't to influence someone else? For someone to look at that and, and say, well, look at Sean, his example, that inspires me. In fact, we see 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says this. He says, let no one despise you of your youth, but set in the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. What am I saying? I'm saying you can't fully worship God while simultaneously devaluing what he's created as somehow meaningless or unimportant. God, it, God is in his fullness when he's with his people. Paul even said, you know, if you say, well, we shouldn't be looking at other people. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, we, on the flip side of that, of course, we're not going to put people up on a pedestal. We're not going to uh, do that and become groupies of certain people or fans of certain people. Paul warned us about that in 1 Corinthians. And he said, hey, you guys are getting on you know, Team Apollos and Team Peter and Paul. And he's like, that's not what it's about. But you can look to somebody and say, man, I want to be like that. I want to live like they're living for Jesus. I want to learn how they've learned to do that with Jesus in fact, if we look at Scripture, and that's where I always go back to is Scripture. What does Scripture say? Does Scripture teach that once you're done, that's it, forget about it, only Jesus? That's not what Scripture actually teaches. In fact, if we go to Hebrews chapter 11, we see a whole list of people. We see it, it, over and over again, it says, by faith, Abel. And it begins to tell what Abel did. By faith, Enoch was taken up. By faith, Noah built the ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Isaac was blessed. By faith, Jacob gave a blessing. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Moses. We see this list, this hall of faith of people who are held up as examples and saying, look what they did for the kingdom of God. And we're, we're shown that. And in fact, Hebrews chapter 11, 32 says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured 
refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in, in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. We see that even in their pains and struggles, we get inspired, we get encouraged. In fact, most of scripture lists stories of other people so that we can be encouraged, so that our faith can go further. That's what most of the Bible is all about. And so that's why I go back and I have an issue with the, I don't want to be remembered, I do want to be remembered. I want people to one day say, you know what? I saw the way that Sean lived his life and that inspired me to go all in for Jesus. That's how God designed us to be. He designed us to do this. So their pain, even their struggles and their victories, that's actually why they are in scripture. They have left us a legacy to benefit from. Even, even this, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through it, though which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The first person to die on the planet Earth, Scripture says he's still speaking to us today. See, God designed us to make an impact. God designed us to pass something down. And when I hear stories like that, I get inspired. I came across one this week, just a random story. Uh, I didn't even know, but I watched this video clip and I was like, man, I want to be like that. Even though there was struggle, even though there was heartache, I, I want to push through and be faithful. Let me just show it to you. Watch this. Adoniram Judson was a missionary to the Burmese during the 19th century. His life was devoted to the translation of the Bible into Burmese and the salvation of the people there. Health, loss, spiritual darkness, and imprisonment were just a few forms of opposition Judson faced for the extent of his ministry, which spanned nearly 36 years. Judson was married three times, having lost his first two wives to illness, seven of his 13 children died before reaching early childhood, and he himself eventually developed a lung disease that would lead to his death. Not only did Judson suffer physical pain and loss in the sharing of the gospel, he suffered imprisonment during the Anglo-Burmese War. For 17 months, Judson was bound by iron and fed very little, sometimes being suspended by his feet. As terrible as his imprisonment was, the worst opposition came upon his release when his father, wife, and child died, leaving him alone and doubting his motives for missionary work. Judson retreated from the world and utilized self-denial and isolation as his means of survival. After a 40-day stint alone in the jungle, he wrote, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. Adoniram Judson had picked up his cross to follow his savior and found himself suffering alone in the jungles of Burma. The news of his brother's passing, a brother whom he believed had found faith before his death, began his immersion from the darkness. It was during the year following this great darkness that the spiritual efforts in Burma began to take root. Had he given up, he would have missed the fruit of the following years on the mission field. 
and today his faithfulness continues to bear fruit as nearly 3,700 congregations in Burma trace their heritage back to this one missionary who stood firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, I, I hear a, a story like that, and even if they're even in the struggle, even the pain, it's like I look at some of the things I'm going through, and I'm like, man, here's a person that persevered in the faith. And it causes me to lean in to God. That's what these examples are for, and that's why it's so important for us to be an example. That inspires me. In fact, let me just keep going and keep laying out a case for this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says, Let us consider how to stir one another up, one another to love and good works. Part of our mission is to live a life that causes other people to be stirred up. That causes other, other people to live a life of good works and to love one another. What am I saying here? I'm saying you can't separate what God is doing from the people he's doing it with. You can't separate what God is doing from the people he's doing it with. And there's a, a story that many of you guys are familiar with, and it's a story of the Israelites. I seem to go back here quite a bit, but they're, they're getting ready to cross over the Jordan, and God parts the Jordan River to go into the Promised Land, just like he parted the Red Sea for Moses. He parts it. They cross over. Now they've set their feet on this, this Promised Land ground and, and getting ready to take over Jericho. And, and then it, there's something interesting happens. In Joshua chapter 4, verse 1, it says, When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge. So God does this miracle with his people, and, and he's, in, he's encouraged now, now remember, the, the Jordan River is still being spread, spread open. And God tells them, hey, there's some rocks here at the bottom of this river. Let's take 12 of these rocks from the middle of the river and let's take them up to where we're going and let's make an altar out of it on the other side so that we can remember what God did through his people, for his people on this very day. We took them out of the middle of the Jordan just to prove that God is the God of the impossible. And so he goes in, in verse 9, it says, And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests of the ark of the covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. If you read it, what he also did is not only did he take rocks out of the Jordan and bring them to an altar, he also took rocks back into the Jordan and made an altar in the middle of the Jordan. And when the waters came back, so that even though no one else could see, they knew that there was a more memorial under the water as well. Goes on to Joshua chapter 4, verse 21. It says, And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, okay, listen to this. When the children ask their father in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. He goes on and says, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Again, you can't separate what God is doing from the people he's doing it with. They're interwoven together. 
See, God's plan for your life is not that you be forgotten, not that you're unimportant. His plan is to work with you, to partner with you, to let his glory shine through you, yes, but not for you to be indispensable, but to partner with God. And some of us, we need to be like those Israelites. See, we're walking through situations where God is doing things in our life and we just, we just pass on by. Some of us need to start picking up some rocks out of the midst of the Jordan and making some altars and pointing back and say, hey kids, remember? Remember when we were going through that tough time? Remember how God showed himself strong in us? Remember how we prayed and walked that out by faith? Remember, and you set an example. Some of us need to start picking up some rocks and making some memorials of what God is doing and how we partner with God. And we have to drop the false humility that says, I'm nothing. We have to drop this. See, we talked about humility last week. And sometimes there's this temptation, if I'm going to be humble before God, then I just have to be completely gone. No, we have to drop the false humility and walk in what we talked about as confident humility before God. Because we know who we are in Jesus. We know who we are in God. See, if all we do is remove ourselves because we shouldn't get in the way of Jesus, then we forget that we are supposed to be living epistles, living letters before, for other people. That we, are, we also forget this that we are God's workmanship, that we are God's trophies, that God wants to show us off. See, part, part of what God wants to do is he wants to show off his work in, by, by lifting us up and saying, look what I can do when I recreate a life and I bring a brand new creation to life. That's what he wants to do. In fact, Ephesians chapter two, verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship. Listen to this. Listen to this. If this isn't God treasuring us, it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. What I'm trying to tell you is that God chooses us. God loves us. He chooses us. He, he holds us up and he's, he, he's, he admi- he's, like, I mean, he's excited about us. He, he loves us. He treasures us. And I think sometimes we think, well, God had to pick me because he had to. (laughs) Like God chose me because he had to, because that's, I mean, he kind of just said for everyone. And you know, if he really knew me, then, you know, maybe he wouldn't have picked me, but he kind of has to because he's God. And he said he would. That's not how God does it. It reminds me of uh, years ago when I was in, uh, I was probably sixth, seventh, eighth grade. I can't remember what year it was, but I, I mean, if I'm honest, I rode the bench a lot playing basketball, okay? You know, my, my younger brother, Ben, started before me while I rode the bench, you know? That's kind of uh, humbling right there. But so, I, I, you know, I, I wasn't the greatest athlete, but there was this one particular day when we were at gym class and they had a flag football thing. And it was co-ed, like everybody's out there in the, in the field. And, and so they start picking teams, you know? And for some reason, somebody got, I, I don't know what happened, but they start picking teams and, and pretty soon, everybody is getting picked. I'm like, whoa, like there's only a few people left, you know, and all the girls are getting picked in front of me. And listen, if you're a sixth grade boy and you get picked, you know, the girls get picked before you, your life, I mean, it doesn't look good on your resume. Let's just say that, okay? We get all the way to the end. And out of the whole class, out of, the, there's multiple classes, I believe, I'm the very last one picked. And I tell you what, something went off on the inside of me. Some sort of 
I don't know, some sort of childhood anger, like literally rose up in me. And I was like, if you could see on the inside, I was so upset. And so we get into the game and somehow, you know, we're playing, no one's throwing me the ball, no one's doing anything like that. And I'm so frustrated. Finally, some fluke happened. I can't remember exactly what happened, but the ball came to me and I'm standing there and again, some switch, I don't know what happened. Uh, some switch flipped in me and I just started running. I mean, we're, we're flag football. I just start pushing people and I'm running. I'm hitting girls. I'm, I'm doing everything. I'm knocking everybody out of the way. I just ran all the way through. I'm jumping over people and I just kept running with the ball. Everybody's yelling at me. It was like some switch flipped on the inside of me. And I think that sometimes we think, well, God chose me. I'm the last one. He just had to choose me. No, God treasures us. That's not the way it is with God. He treasures us. He delights in his kids. <laughs> Let me say it this way. God is a king, right? In a kingdom. But God is not a king that has subjects and servants. He's a king that has family and friends. That's who God is. He is a king, but he's a king with family and friends. And so we could talk about, well, you know, doesn't God value faithfulness and obedience and all of those things? And does he just like me even whatever? Yeah, we'll talk about those things maybe next week and how important they are. But before you do any of those things, before you walk out in obedience and before you say, well, I just got to be faithful, you know, or God maybe won't, won't like me. You have to settle who you are before God. You have to understand where you stand before God. You have to understand your identity in God. I've shared this before, but you just think about Jesus, his baptism, what happened to, you know, John the Baptist baptizes him. And then you hear a voice that comes from heaven and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is before Jesus made his mark on the map. This is before anyone knew who he was, really. This was before any miracles happened. This was before any of that. And God says, before you've done anything, I'm gonna put my stamp of approval on you. And can I tell you, you don't need to be approved in God. You've already been approved. Before you do anything, he says, I'm pleased with you because you're my son, you're my daughter. Will faithfulness and obedience come into part? Yeah, we'll talk about that. But before you get to any of that, you have to settle in your heart who you are in him. You have to settle your standing in him. You know, we talk about baptism. It's like a, it's like a sunken ship. That's what, what the picture of baptism is. Like, like when a, a ship sinks, water fills every single cavern and every single room, and that is fully immersed. That, that's what baptism is. That's really what we want the Holy Spirit to do in us, that his identity, that his work comes and fully immerses every single part of us. And, and I'm getting ready to close. We started off with that 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 scripture, those different layers and levels. And I just want us to make it personal because some of us are really struggling, maybe with shame or maybe with burdens or doubts or insecurities in God or maybe a wrong theology if I'm not worthy. And we really need to let God's identity permeate and, and fill up every single part of our life. How, how might we go about doing that? Well, I, I believe that just as we have those levels and layers, 
in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let me just read it again. It says, And what you've heard from me from faithful, or heard in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see all those levels. And so the further away you get from Paul, the, the more you see correct culture or correct teaching, you know that's a win, right? Now let's make it personal in our own life. And I'll ask you a question. How far away do you get from like your red hot moment with God, like your, maybe your church moment with God? How many levels or degrees away can you get and still find the identity of God in you? Like when you walk away from this place and you get into the middle of your week and you have a moment where you're struggling and you're, you're several layers away from a moment like this, does the identity of God still carry true and hold true in your thought life on Wednesday afternoon? Does the identity of God and the heart for it and the healing that God wants to do in your life and the new creation work that God wants to do in your life, does it still play out in your attitude on Thursday when you have a conversation? And again, I'm not trying to make this about behavior. I'm just asking us to evaluate how far has God's kingdom culture permeated into our life. And what I want us to do is just to really invite the Holy Spirit to come into every single degree every single layer, not just when we're at church, not just when we're in a Bible study, but when we're living life and Satan comes with his condemnation, does it still, does the kingdom culture of God still hold true in our life? Because God loves you. I, I, say, I say it this way, I heard it this way a long time ago. There's nothing I can do to make God love me anymore. And there's nothing I can do to make God love me any less. Because his gift of righteousness, what he did on the cross, he did even while I was still a sinner. There's nothing that changes my position with him. There's things that happen in our life that affects our fellowship with God, but there's nothing that can change my relationship that is settled before him. I am a son. You're a son. You're a daughter in him. A while ago when we were singing that song, it's been a couple years probably, but how many of you guys know that song, Good, Good Father, you know? And it, the chorus says, you know, you're a good father. That's who you are. And it, then it gets to this line where it says, and I'm loved by you. That's who I am. I remember I was going through something a couple years ago, and we were sitting, I was sitting, standing right here, and I was singing that, and I was feeling kind of the burden of that. And all of a sudden, we got to that moment where it says, God, you are a good father. And I'm loved by you. That's who I am. It was almost like my identity was affected. And all of a sudden, I felt like the, any shame or any burden or any doubt, whatever, just all of a sudden just broke free. And I had this revelation that because of who God is, because the gift of his son, the, the righteousness of God, the right standing that's been gifted to me because what Jesus did on the cross is a gift and there's nothing I can do to earn it. There's nothing I can do to, to, to do anything to gain it. That I had this revelation that when I'm found in Christ, there's not one person on the planet who stands ahead of me in line before God. I think about the, the most, you know, you, you put whoever you want, Billy Graham or whoever your, your person is, but since it's a gift given to all of us that we can't earn, we can't do anything about to get it. 
then we all stand on equal footing before God. And isn't that such a, an amazing feeling to know that God loves you and there's nothing you can do to make him love you anymore. There's nothing you can do to make him love you any less. He is a good father. You are loved by him and that's who you are. I want you, I pray that you get a revelation and my whole goal today is just simply to shoot encouragement into your soul that God loves you. So we're just gonna close up and have the worship team come back up and we're just gonna close up and I'm gonna invite you to stand with me and I'm gonna pray that God, his revelation of how much he loves you, that you'll even feel it right now. So let's stand up right now. God, I pray right now for anybody here who's walked in with any type of discouragement, any type of wrong thinking, any type of doubt that you might love them, that maybe you picked them because you had to, but if you, if you had the choice, you wouldn't have. I pray that any lie of the enemy would be broken. Any lie would fall off. Maybe somebody's come into this place and there's things that they could list off that would be barriers uh, to their, their thinking that you would love them. Lord, I pray, yes, conviction is good. Let conviction come, let repentance come, but help them to understand that you love them, that you're in a good mood, that you love them, that you love them. And God, we thank you so much that no matter what, what's going on in our life, that you are faithful. Your word says even when we're faithless, that you are faithful. Tonight we lean into that. Help us to be carriers of your presence. Help us to live lives that inspire others in the faith, that spur one another on to love and to good things. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship one more time.